I think it's probably my legal background too. Like I always want to fix things. I want to like, what's the answer? Let's resolve it. Let's fix it. I have to learn the hard way through my kids. You can't fix everything, but at least we can try. Ellen O, known for the Prophecy Trilogy and the Spirit Hunter series, among other stories like Finding Junie Kim, was seemingly born with a craving for justice. Her first career, appropriately, was in law, but when she became a parent, she was reawakened to the distressing lack of diversity in children's literature. So she made a very Ellen O choice. She switched careers and started writing that diverse content herself. But that need for justice was still not met. And eventually, she co-founded the organization We Need Diverse Books. That's the very short version of the story. The full version is even more compelling. And thankfully, she told me that one herself at the ALA Lib Learn X conference in New Orleans this January. Today's episode is a special one. We recorded that live onstage conversation with Ellen O, and now we get to bring it to everyone who didn't have the opportunity to be there in person. You'll hear from Ellen about how Grumpy Cat helped ignite the diverse books movement, how she's still motivated by the intense racism she faced as a schoolgirl, and her list of the top three things you can do now to fight the spread of book bans. Plus, we'll learn about the horrifying family tradition she grew up with and then passed on to her own kids. My name is Jordan Lloyd Bookie, and this is The Reading Culture, a show where we speak with authors and reading enthusiasts to explore ways to build a stronger culture of reading in our communities. We dive into their personal experiences, their inspirations, and why their stories and ideas motivate kids to read more. It's time to head to New Orleans. So let's get started. So I want to welcome to the Reading Culture podcast, Ellen, I'm very excited to have Ellen O here today as our guest. For those who don't already know Ellen, you should, but Ellen is the author of the Prophecy series, Spirit Hunters, Finding Junie Kim, and the editor of a variety of anthologies, including this one that's about to come you out. Are here. You are here. <laughs> she also, that we're going to talk a lot about today, co-founded and leads an organization called We Need Diverse Books. So have you all heard of that? before? Yeah? All right. Let's give it up for We Need Diverse Books, which is amazing. <laughs> I've read that you you said your your parents still owe the New York Public Library some babysitting fees. Oh, yeah. So you want to tell us a little bit about your um, about your experience with libraries as a young kid. What was your, your experience with the library? I mean, I love libraries, right? School libraries, public libraries, they were like my safe spaces. Sometimes from bullies, sometimes just from being a poor Asian kid in New York City and not having a lot of resources, right? Not having the ability to buy books. But like with the library, I always had books available to me. And that was probably a life-saving thing for me, especially. I was like Matilda with the red wagon going to school, you know, to the library. Except, you know, I'm a poor kid. So I had the shopping cart, you know, the wire shopping cart. You stick like a paper bag in there and you fill it up with books and you... You know, I like greeting all the grandmas on the way here. Hey, yeah, <laughs> on my way to the library. The library was like just my favorite place in the world. Also, my parents used to forget me at the library all the time. And, you know, the librarians were really nice. They'd wait with me till my parents would come to pick me up until I was eight. And then I was able to do it by myself. See, 
So that was my experience, yeah. <laughs> uh, what kind of books were you reading? What kind of books did, were you drawn to as a little bitty kid? So I feel like I had to look it up. Like, I had to, you know, because, you know, it's been so long. I'm old. But I realized that I, like, was a huge Beverly Cleary, Cleary fan. Then I graduated to the Racy Judy Bloom books. <laughs> I mean, like, I still remember reading forever. Like, woo. And then... Let's see, thrillers, I love Lois Duncan, right? Like the uh, Killing Mr. Griffin and I Know What You Did Last Summer, all those books. Like, So I graduated from Lois Duncan to Stephen King and I think I was reading too fast when I was young. So like I was reading Stephen King in middle school and that's not always great because the first time I read Salem's Lot in the middle of the night, I could not sleep. I would not put my feet down on the floor because, you know, there's something under my bed. I couldn't pee. I just, like, was in bed awake all night. And I loved it. And that's why I wanted to write horror novels. Also because, you know, I have had parents that they're, like, old-school Korean immigrants, and their favorite thing in the world was to scare me with stories, you know, every is that, story. Is that, like, a thing? We should know that? Yes. There, is that, that's a... I it's mean, a, I guess with, like, the recent, all the, <laughs> you know, like, all the uh, Korean pop culture that's coming out, maybe that should be obvious. Exactly. But, Koreans okay, but love But that's, like, horror. a thing, like, to scare? Yes, they do. They absolutely do. Like, if you go to, like, a Korean-Korean mm-hmm. house, and even if they have little kids, they'll have, like, you know, something horrifying on the TV screen, and they don't care. Like, there's, like, just no... Like, my kids took me to a werewolf movie when I was two. You know, my mom's like, I had to cover my eyes and you were watching the whole thing, Ellen. I just don't understand. I'm like, I was traumatized, mom. Why didn't you cover my eyes? But you were also hooked, basically. Yes, is what I it was, sounds like. you know, yeah. So then I grew up, you know, to be a mom that likes to scare her kids, right? Like I was that mom, I would wait in a room covered up until like one of my kids would waddle in, mama, and I'm like, wah! <laughs> so all three of my kids are in therapy. Has nothing to do with the fact that I like to scare them. Did they like to read horror? They don't. <laughs> okay. I don't know why. Yeah. <laughs> and then you also, I think in the library, wrote you, well, we can get to writing, but you, it sounds like you wrote a lot of your first book in the various public libraries. And yeah. Is that true? In fact, I think I wrote my first book, Prophecy, mostly in the Bethesda Public Library. First of all, it's quieter than a bookstore. And the problem with working in a bookstore is then you start listening to people's conversations and they're always really interesting and you don't get any work done. So at the library, I knew I I would get work done. But also, like, I had the resources there, right? Like, I could read anything I want. Uh, Let me tell you, my favorite book, actually, when I was younger was actually The Counts of Monte Cristo, which gave me a really terrible revenge complex, by the way. (laughs) Like, revenge. And I actually read that while I was reading my prophecy, like, uh. I don't think I had my copy, so I would go to the library stacks and then pull the books that I wanted to like reference while I was writing. So it's the best place. Very cool. I also want to know like what you were like as a kid. When I, I was thinking like the word I didn't say when I introduced you, I forgot. But I, but you, I think of you indomitable. I'm like that's the word for Ellen. Like just goes, you know. Also, I don't understand how you are like doing all these things. But were you like that as a kid, or what were you outspoken as you are now, or what was your? Yeah, I kind of was a little jerk. I I admit that, you know, but I also had a very strong sense of like fair play and justice and revenge. (laughs) Counts of Monte Cristo. Why why were you a jerk? Yeah, no, so this kind of goes back to my dad. So when I was growing up in New York, I had bullies, right? My dad was like, okay, I'm going to tell you a story. And I was like, okay. 
And he's like, back in Korea a long time ago, there was this old woman who had children and she went to get food at the town and a tiger was following her and said, give me some of your food and I won't eat you. And so the woman gives the food, but the tiger keeps following her and says, give me some of your food, I won't eat you. So finally she has no more food and the tiger eats her, right? And my dad says, your bully is the tiger. And if you don't fight back, they will bother you until they eat you one day. And so when, you know, you're faced with your tiger, you have to hit back 10 times harder. But I was this really literal kid, so 10 times harder meant 10 times harder, right? So you you decided you're going to use your words to become a lawyer. Can you talk a little bit, I guess, about your your journey from lawyer? We won't dwell on the time that you were a lawyer, except for just to know it. But then can you tell us a little bit about how you came to writing? When I went to, uh, like, decided that I wanted to write, it's kind of one of those stories where I never had that intention. I never thought I was going to be an author. Like, when I was in college, I loved writing. When I was in high school, my English high school teacher was great, and he said I was a good writer, but I never thought of it as something that I would do. And it wasn't until I had my first child that I went to the bookstore and... Like, I was determined to go and look for books. And I just, I remember that moment of, like, I've got my daughter in a stroller, and I walk into Barnes & Nobles, and the particular Barnes & Nobles near me, the kids' section was behind these two, like, walls of all YA books. And I had never seen so many beautiful white girls in dresses facing me. It was, like, <laughs> blindingly, beautifully white. And I remember looking at that going, when I was a kid... And that feeling of like never belonging would have hit me so hard at this moment. And that was when I was like, I want to do something about that. Imagine a daughter not knowing her own mother. And then it occurs to me, they are frightened. In me, they see their own daughters just as ignorant, just as unmindful of all the truths and hopes they have brought to America. They see daughters who grow impatient when their mothers talk in Chinese, who think they are stupid when they explain things in fractured English. They see that joy and luck do not mean the same to their daughters. That to these closed American-born minds, joy luck is not a word. It does not exist. They see daughters who will bear grandchildren born without any connecting hope passed from generation to generation. I will tell them everything, I say simply, and the aunties look at me with doubtful faces. I will remember everything about her and tell them, I say more firmly, and gradually, one by one, they smile and pat my hand. They still look troubled as if something were out of balance, but they also look hopeful that what I will say will become true. What more can they ask? What more can I promise? This is a passage when June joins the Mahjong table after her mother died, and the aunties have told her she has to go to China and tell her lost twin sisters about her mother. So uh, let me explain why I chose this to, to read, because when I was growing up in New York, like racism was really in your face. And if I had a dollar for every time somebody told me to go back to my own country or go back to China, I'm Korean, not Chinese. If I had a dollar for that, I would be a billionaire, right? Because it's just like the most racist but fundamental thing that 
people would want to say when they want to other you. And it felt very much like I never belonged. And the books that we saw, like in second grade, my teacher read The Five Chinese Brothers, the really, oh, really so, yellow version yeah. of The Chinese Brothers with the slitty eyes, right? Yeah. And in, when we went to art later that day, the boy next to me, he like painted my arm mustard yellow because he, he said I was the wrong color for a Chinaman. Right. And so that moment I realized, oh, my gosh, a book can actually be racist. I'm in second grade, like, you know, and like you don't really understand until you grow up. Like you don't understand what you've been missing if you've never seen it before. And when I was in college, I saw the Joyla Club and I read it and it was life transforming. It was like that moment when I went Oh my gosh, for the first time, I feel like and I, I can actually say I belong because here in this book that's a New York Times bestseller that white people are reading is the experience of my life. And it didn't matter that it's Chinese American and I'm Korean American. It was actually seeing that experience on, in the pages of a book that was so life transforming. So I actually remember having that same push and pull relationship with my own parents, you know, where they were like so disappointed that I didn't speak Korean, that I'm not fluent in reading and writing my mother language, that I was too Americanized. And so I, I felt this passage deeply because that was literally my own parents' relationship with me. Well, you have three kids. In relation to this passage, what is your relationship to them? And do you think you experience anything of the same with them? It's really interesting because, so my kids are third generation. So their experience is very different. Like they almost can't relate to the Joy Luck Club the way I did. Like this is why you need a lot of different various perspectives in books, right? You can't ever rely on that one single story. Their relation to Joy Luck Club is more like, oh, interesting. It isn't that, oh, right? Um, but also for, especially like for my oldest, Linda Sue Park started writing when she was in elementary school. So the first time she read a book about a Korean-American kid was when she was in third grade. And so that makes that, that difference, you know, where she was far more like, I'm happy to accept my Korean culture and also to accept my American culture, which I never could do that. I was always like very embarrassed almost about being so different whereas my kids actually have pride in it yeah so that was very different which is like so amazing and so much about what I think the beginning of of we need diverse books just even just like the hashtag that we showed before it was really about was about increasing diversity in children's literature. So that's the beginning. So maybe you can talk a little bit about BookCon <laughs> and the, that period and then um, the beginning vision for We Need Diverse Books. You know, I think actually with We Need Diverse Books, people forget that people have been working for diversity for a very long time. It's just that We Need Diverse Books was kind of like that perfect storm of social media and also BookCon really screwing up royally and so publicly. And I really think that that was all the factors that made it work. Also, it was the first time that an organization was not saying, you know, this is only for Asians or this is only for black you know, writers and this is only for LGBTQ. It was literally, we all need to work together to represent our interests. We work better 
when we work together. And that, I think, is also why We Need Diverse Books was so helpful, but um, was so successful. I like to go back to the beginning of 2014. Meg Medina and Lamar Giles and I were at a festival, and we were just talking about how we were so tired of being on diversity panels, and why can't we just be talking about being writers and, like, the hero's journey and all that. And I think I turned to Lamar and Megan. I was like, you know, we need to do something big, so big that people can't forget it. And Lamar was like, literally, as long as it's not illegal, I'm in. (laughs) And Meg was like, okay, Ellen, what are you thinking? And I had no idea. And fast forward like a couple of weeks and BookCon makes that announcement. I don't know if you guys remember. It was like the rock stars of Kidlet and it was like four white guys, right? And now... As we all know, there's a lot of women writers in Kidlet, and they all were rightfully angry. And all the BIPOC writers went, ha ha, welcome to our world. And then not even like a week later or so, BookCon comes out with another announcement. And they're like, look at our list of BookCon guests headed by John Green. And that list was 30 white people and a grumpy cat. So like it literally, they had just compounded the problem, right? And everybody's attention was so directed at it that we were like, okay, I think I was on Twitter. I was talking with Melinda Lowe. Oh, we need to do something. I did that thing again. We need to do something big. And more people came over and said, yes, what do you want to do? And I'm like, okay, now I have to actually think of something. But at that moment, so like, you know, Twitter and, and Tumblr especially, there was a thing where people were telling kind of stories with a hashtag and a picture. And I was like, you know, that is really such a wonderful way to express a story, like really the visual and the words combined. So that's why I love graphic novels. And so we're like, okay, let's do a hashtag and do this campaign and let people tell stories about how not having diversity really hurt them. And we can call it, we need diverse books, God damn it, because it's 2014 and how long, much longer are we going <laughs> to... All right, no, so I'm not good at hashtags. And then the uh, 20 other people said, why don't we just say we need diverse books? And so that's basically how it came about. It was a team of amazing people. I got to shout them out now. Like, I was fortunate to work with Lamar Giles, Meg Medina, Linda Sue Park, Aisha Saeed, Marika Nishkamp, Miranda Paul, Eileen Wong, Mike Junk, Caroline Richmond, Daniel Clayton, Olubomisela, Rude Perkovich, Stacey Lee, so many more. But these people all worked, like, round the clock, like crazy, to make a hashtag become a nonprofit organization. And I, I don't have to tell you guys how hard that is, but it was a lot of work. My law, lawyer brain was good in saying, we need a plan and we need to execute it, right? I think a lot of times when you have hashtags and stuff, people are like, yay, let's make a lot of noise and bring a lot of attention to it. And then it just fades away. And I didn't want that to happen. I was like, if we're going to, you know, if we're going to take advantage of this moment where we've gone viral, then let's actually make programming that will fix what we're complaining about. And I think it's probably my legal background, too. Like, I always want to fix things. I want to, like, what's the answer? Let's resolve it. Let's fix it. I have to learn the hard way through my kids. You can't fix everything. But at least we can try. So you... The initial focus was really on like having more, one, more recognition for writers who were already writing. Right. To also getting more content 
out there? Would you say that's like an accurate reflection? Yeah, I think also remembering that there is a lot of wonderful books already out there being published all the time and getting those books the attention that they needed. Getting like wonderful authors the marketing that they never get. Right, yeah. So like part of WNDB was to support books by bringing more attention to them. That's really the impetus of doing the Walter Awards. And again, I want to take the moment to say WNDB was only su- successful because it worked on the shoulders of the giants before us, right? Like Walter Dean Myers, like Nikki Grimes, like Dr. Rudine Sims Bishop, Jacqueline Woodson. Like there are so many people who work so hard to make diversity in Kidlet important. And we were able to kind of work because of what they put, the foundation that they built. Mm -hmm. Uh, We just were able to use social media at that time. And that's what really helped us. Yeah, and I think, um, which you're right, that's right, there's everything's built. And I, I heard, I think maybe it was the National Book Festival, or I can't remember where, but you, were, you quoted Walter D. Myers in that, like, the last article that he wrote. And I think he ends with, like, there's work to be done, there's still work to be done. One thing when you, I was watching that in preparation for this, but one thing that made me think about, I guess, is that, like, the goalposts feel like they've moved to use, I love when I can use a sports analogy. Yeah. So, okay, yes, maybe haven't like achieved every single goal that you set out at the beginning for We Need Diverse Books and you have so much more to go, but it feels like now there are far more books out there yeah. that, in, and books out there that are being celebrated, not just by We Need Diverse Books, but in general, right? There's, there's so much more uh, diverse, diversity in children's literature, but now you refer to what I heard, I saw you recently called it a counter movement. Yeah, can you speak a little bit to that, the work that you mm-hmm. did right. and the how, that, how what's happening right now is sort of feels like a response? You have to think back, right? So I tried to start writing when I was like, actually back in 2000, I can pinpoint that. I tried to start writing, it took 10 years. And uh, when I finally got a book deal, it was right around 2012 when that really kind of famous infographic was making the rounds. Yeah, Wisconsin. You know, the one, yeah, yeah, the Children's Cooperative, you know, did all those uh, statistics, right? And so there was, I forgot the name of the artist who did it. Kugler, maybe? Anyway, she did this beautiful infographic where they showed how little books there were for black kids and Asian kids and especially indigenous kids. And then this towering stack of 92% books for white kids. And I remember seeing that at that time. And I'm going, this is what has to change. They can't have books that about BIPOC being only 7% of what's being published. So now when we look at those statistics, yes, we've made dramatic change. I think the last statistic I saw were at 35% possibly or more. We also were hitting the New York Times bestsellers list with uh, authors like, think about Angie Thomas, who, by the way, was a WNDB grant winner, right? Who won the grant and was able to buy a brand new laptop, finish her manuscript that went on to become this now perennial bestseller. That's kind of an amazing story. It really tells you what can be achieved if you put the support behind it. And publishing in general was not putting support behind black books and, you know, books by BIPOC authors because there was that myth, that myth that black books don't sell, that, you know, books about people of color don't sell. And that was what we wanted to change. And I think we did a good job. 
But when change like that happens in a very public way, in a very sudden way, there is going to be whiplash reactions. And, and I can just tell you right now, from the beginning, the amount of hate mail that I would get that would basically say, you are causing white genocide. Like, literally, this is diversity for children's literature. I promise you I'm not causing genocide. <laughs> But this, like, people get very upset. Just, like, parents or, like, teach, like who's... Just everybody. Like, you, you, you would not have wanted to see my mail during the first three, four years of WNDP because people were just so hateful. They were so angry at what we were trying to achieve. So I'm not surprised at what's happening now. Mm-hmm. And book bans have always been around. But this particular level of book banning is actually really dangerous. It does feel like an existential threat. You've talked about like soft censorship. Can you like help us understand or speak to that? We're seeing it. And soft censorship, of course, is even more dangerous than the outright book bans because it's the books that are being pulled. Like in Florida, did you guys see that video of the school library where all the books are off the shelves because teachers and librarians are afraid to possibly be in violation of that stupid statute there? right, that will actually get them charged with a third-degree felony? Like, who's going to risk that? This is dangerous times. Soft censorship, it's self-censorship. It's they're pulling it because they're afraid. That's where we're now in. We're in this George Orwellian times of, like, tip lines and snitch lines happening for people to report librarians and teachers teaching their kids history, you know, or about LGBTQ People who live in their communities with them. It's scary. It's disgusting. It's just so wrong. And it's up to all of us, every single one of us, to fight back. I mean, I know librarians and teachers are on the, you know, on the front lines fighting. And that's why we have to you know, support every single one of them. Rally the community. It's that important. What do you have like for the people in this room, people who um, will be listening to the podcast, what are... like? things that you you wish that every person like took away and thought, okay, I'm going to do at least this one, two, three things? Well, I think one of the most important things we have to do is talk. Conversations, tell everybody we know about what's happening. If people really understand what's happening, I think they would be really horrified and want to fight back. I think right now we have a bit of complacency going on. Myths like, oh, but you know, when they ban books, that's good for sales, right? No, it's not. It's actually quite terrible. It really destroys careers. I think that's something we have to explain. Maybe So Mouse got banned and they became a bestseller. Yeah, it was probably already selling really well. Like Usually the books that are high enough profile that get that will sell well, but it's one. Look at the hundreds and thousands of books that are being attacked. Those books will die terrible, sad, lonely deaths. Authors who could depend on complementing their income by going to do school and library visits, they're drying up. They're not being invited. I know my school visits, they have been halved, if not like even more. They drop so, so much because I've heard librarians saying, I can't invite you because somebody complained. So authors, midlist authors that you love, won't get new book deals because their books aren't selling and publishing is a business. So book bans are terrible, terrible. They destroy careers for authors. We need to let people know that. They don't know that. They literally think book bans are good 
for authors. We need to also explain exactly in detail what librarians and teachers are being held accountable to and how it's hurting kids. It's hurting all kids, not just some. And we want to point out also that, you know, this idea of we're doing this to protect kids. They're only doing it to protect certain kids. Whereas librarians and teachers, your job is to protect all kids, right? That is another counter-narrative. And the big thing I want to remind people of is if we believe and accept that parents should have the authority to decide what their kids can and can't read, then isn't these book bans counterintuitive? Like literally you're saying, okay, we don't trust you to protect your kids appropriately. Therefore, we will decide what books you are allowed to let your children have access to. That's what a book ban is doing. You want to clap? You're clapping. You can clap for it. I think we all want to clap for that. I think, I think everybody in this, you know, the room is feeling what you're saying. I wonder, like, when you, if you've, you said a lot of your visits have been canceled. Have you visited, like, um, schools, libraries, communities where you feel like they are building this, like, culture of reading that does represent, you know, the ideal diverse culture is doing it? How, what does that look like, you know, I guess for you? My favorite visits have always been when I go to a school, I go into their school library and you can see how welcoming and what a safe space it is. Like, you know, it's like the sign that says all are welcome and come in and that there are students there who come and you can tell that they feel like they have a place to feel safe. And I can't tell you how important that is for a lot of kids, especially LGBTQ kids right now, right? And I like visited places like I was in the, you know, South Carolina where the school librarians there were very supportive of their LGBTQ kids. And I had lunch with them and they were like, you know, this is, you know, we're allowed to write stories and, and read the books that we want and that it made them feel confident and that I would hear from them. I want to tell our stories. I want everyone to know who we are and that we are here and we're just like you. Like, these are kids talking. And because those kids were so confident in who they were and confident in their safe spaces, the student body was much more open and welcoming also. So I do feel like that library safe space is so important. It's like a core safety positivity zone that kind of feeds out to the rest of the school. Uh, where I've had different experiences where I've gone to a school and the librarian was very like, closed. Like, they didn't even want me there. Like, the PTA actually was the one that brought me in. And I could see the librarian didn't want me there at all. And I had talked to a couple of the students, and the students, I remember this, I'll never forget it. They were like, yeah, when the librarian book talks books, she only book talks to white books. At the time, I think, oh, what was the Kwame's book? had won the Newberry, right? And they were like, when they book-talked the books, she didn't even talk about crossover. She left it on the bottom of the, of the pile. Like, only the kids who knew about it went to get it. And I was just like, wow. So again, the librarian, right? Her attitudes, his attitudes, will really dictate how that, the level of safety and openness that can kind of like feed out to the rest of the school that's why it's so important. Yeah, it is, and why it's so scary when it's like, you know, exactly. Threatened. 
the ability to do that is threatened. Can we talk, I didn't get to ask you my question about your newest anthology, which is coming up, and is Contemporary Asian American Voices. Yes. Yeah, so you are here, Connecting Flights. You want to just talk about it briefly? I Sorry. do want to talk about it. <laughs> um, how many here know Flying Lessons by We Need Diverse Books? Yeah, thank you very much. So when we did Flying Lessons, uh, Grace Lynn did this wonderful story about a girl pirate, right? And I loved it, and Grace was so into it, and we were so proud of this story. And then we got an email from an Asian blogger who was really disappointed that the only East Asian story was set in China and wasn't American. And Grace and I were like, oh, we were like, oh my gosh, we're Asian and we completely missed this ourselves. And it became a mission for us to kind of tell an anthology of stories that was very Asian American, to give that like voice for Asian Americans. And of course, before we got to do that, the pandemic hit. Asian hate rose. Uh, we were seeing a lot of violence towards Asian, and it became even more important to do this anthology, uh, which I actually shouldn't call it anthology. I don't want to call it that. It is a novel of 12 interconnected stories that should read very smoothly. It's a novel, not an anthology. That's how I'm going to actually pitch it from now on. And it was probably the, the best experience of my life to work with these authors and just tell a story about the Asian American experience, how much we love being American and how much it's difficult sometimes to be othered and yet we still love it here. And giving that kind of pride and affirmation to all the kids who will hopefully read this book and enjoy it. When's it available again? March 3rd. This is my, my last question for Ellen. So if you have things, be thinking of something you'd like to ask, this is your moment's about to be here. Beanstack has uh, reading challenges on our uh, platform. And so we always ask, and we put them on there, but also we make it just like on a nice piece of paper that anybody can go and participate in the reading challenge that our guests offer. So I wanted to know what your reading challenge is for us. I'm going to read it. Read my reading challenge. Okay, I believe that books save lives. And as dramatic or even cheesy as that sounds, I want to remind people of the power of books and that it is their ability to show each reader that they are not alone. We all know the importance of representation in books and how life-affirming it can be for those who are historically underrepresented. Books are powerful. There's a reason for all this book banning. They know just how important these books are. And with states passing laws that are flagrantly anti-LGBTQ, anti-CRT, which is another way of just being racist, uh, books are more important than ever. Books are a lifeline for kids, and so is the library, especially LGBTQ kids whose very existence is being threatened right now. It is our responsibility to fight for all kids, not just the privileged ones. And there are more of us that believe in these books and believe in all of our kids. We just have to make ourselves be heard over all of the noise and lies and fear. So what I want to do is I want to push a list of books as the parent of an LGBTQ child. That is basically what my reading challenge is going to be based on. I wanted to mention uh, When the Moon Was Ours because my youngest is transgender and he had a very difficult experience. He was hospitalized for a week. He had a lot of bullying issues. 
it was really hard also with what was happening in the news to let him know that it was going to be all okay because it just didn't feel like it was going to be all okay. And then one day he came to me. He said, hey, mom, you know how I, you haven't been talking about me publicly? I'm like, yeah. He's like, you can talk about me now. And I was like, okay, why? What happened? He's like, I want people to know that we deserve our happy ever afters also that we shouldn't just be some lesson or some tragic story. Tell everybody that we want our books, our stories told. And I realized at that moment that he had actually fallen in love with Anna Marie McLemore's book. And it was actually the first time he had seen himself the way he wanted to be seen in the pages of a book. And so when I say books save lives, I really mean it. And I want people to find those books that you think save lives and add them to my list also, because there are so many. And I know that there's going to be a kid somewhere that is going to need that book, and it will save their lives. So thank you for that. Thank you. Okay, well, I'm now crying. <laughs> so, um, so thank you, and that's very beautiful. And um, I want to open it up to if anybody has a question. Did we get any questions on the... Also, just like one more round of applause for Ellen, because that was just like, that really, I, I feel like I'm very moved right now, really. Thank you so much and for And for the bravery of your, I don't know their name, but um, for their bravery. So really, thank you. He... Um... There was a time where I couldn't tell the story without crying myself, so yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it was <God>. hard. <laughs> I really hope you've enjoyed this live, uncut interview with Ellen O. Typically, this is the part of our podcast when we hear from a Beanstack-featured librarian. But for this episode, we will instead feature the librarians who were in the room with us in New Orleans and share some of their questions for Ellen. Let's take a listen. Hi. So I am a library supervisor in Florida on the front lines of this. Most of my librarians are not trained librarians. I want to know if you had any like strategies to help me teach them how to combat that soft censorship that's going to come around the training that was just released for our house bill. Oh my gosh. I feel so strongly for you and, you know, all the news that's coming out of there. I think that right now, the best thing we can do is just to look at all the resources that are available that we also have been trying to put together resources. And I know that the, I know ALA Maine is working on like having a lot of resources too, but is there a way to have any kind of training like, you know, workshops yourself or is there ways to invite, let's say, if WNDB and PEN America wanted to do a training program and open it up on Zoom to invite the librarians that way? Is that something that would be of interest? 100%. Okay, great. So those are things that we would definitely want to work on for you. That would be fantastic because when you have librarians without experience and they're hearing their licenses on the line and the right. third degree felony, they are going to self-censor and they won't put those diverse voices in the library and then we stop creating those safe spaces. Exactly. Absolutely. We are so mindful of that. And so what we are doing is putting those resources together. And also we work with, we've been working with PEN America and Freedom to Read in Florida. 
so I think the next step might be having more of those Zooms directed to, because we've been doing it for authors for now, but having them actually do for librarians. So that's on our list. Caitlin, we're going to do it. Hi. Hi. My name is Carrie Knapp, and I'm a proud high school librarian from Doherty Valley in San Ramon, California. Um, and we're actually facing our very first book challenge in, you know, liberal California. Um, and in my 11 years. And so I just really wanted to say thank you because as we've been like meeting and meeting and meeting and talking and discussing amongst our team about how to kind of be brave and and get ready to fight the fight. Your words just really sink in, and like as we go back to our first big meeting next week, like I just feel so much more empowered from hearing your words and and from being here. So I just want to say thank you for that, and um, and wish us luck. We're we're fighting to keep gender queer, and we're going to keep it. Well, first of all, thank you for all you're doing and fighting, <laughs> which is the Korean <laughs> listen thing. Right? To, listen to <laughs> listen to Ellen's dad. <laughs> <laughs> Ten times harder. Yes. Absolutely. And, you know, I know I don't have to say, you know more than me what's at stake and the kids that need this, right? So I know you guys are fighting hard already. I, I am praying for all of you, giving you strength with all my thoughts, right? Let's give one more big round of applause for Ellen O. Thank you very, very much for, for being here and for oh, doing this for and just for like the amazing work. We Need Diverse Books, if you're just not as familiar with all their programming, there is like an extensive amount of things and that's diversebooks.org and please check it out and also please make sure if you haven't already celebrated the Walter Awards that you do. But there are so many other amazing programs that you guys are doing, so thank you. Yes, thank you very much for having me. Thank you all for listening and thank you for fighting for our kids. I am proud of all of you. I know how hard it is. Fighting! <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> This has been The Reading Culture, and you've been listening to our conversation with the indomitable Ellen O. As always, you can learn more about her reading challenge, Books Save Lives, at thereadingculturepod.com. Again, I'm your host, Jordan Lloyd Bookie, and currently I'm reading Red at the Bone by Jacqueline Woodson and City Spies, City of the Dead by James Ponty. If you've enjoyed today's show, please show some love and rate, subscribe, and share the reading culture among your friends and networks. To learn more about how you can help grow your community's reading culture, you can check out all of our resources at beanstack.com. Beanstack.